fact, I believe Luke spends 19 chapters telling us what Mark and Matthew tell us in one chapter. And there's a pretty good reason for it. And we have the triumphal entry, Hosanna Sunday, Passion Week, the Resurrection and Ascension. Seven sections. Before we dive into the Gospel, I'm going to tell you what the purpose of this Bible study is going to be. We've, we've just finished one, uh, one series on the way to read the Bible. And I believe we do have CDs available if you're interested. But let me give you the gist of it. In the Catholic tradition, there are four senses of scripture. And you can find those four senses in the Catechism, starting with section 101. Read section 101 to about 127, it, where they talk about the four senses of scripture. The four ways in which we can read scripture. And generally you need all four of them to get a good, clear picture of scripture. I'm not going to say that you need all four of them to fully understand scripture. But you need all four of them to form the picture. And those four senses are the literal meaning, which is the meaning that the author intended when he wrote the text. What was the historical context in which he lived? What, he, what was the purpose for which he was writing? Who, is, who was he writing to? What's behind the scenes? To give you an example, if I were to say September 11, I just brought back a full historical context with two words. If we had a Martian come and visit us right now and he heard me say September 11, all he gets is a partial date. But that's not what you're getting. Most often when we read the Bible, we're like that Martian. Because we miss the literal meaning. Literal doesn't mean literalist. Sometimes we have to take the word of scripture to at as it is written to the letter, when Jesus says, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. There's no if, there's no but. You can't, you can't interpret it symbolically. But there are other parts, such as when John says, I am the, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. We can't take it literally. He was not out there in the wilderness alone crying. Right? The literal meaning is very important. Then you have the allegorical meaning. The allegorical meaning is a meaning as it pertains to Christ. When Jesus said, destroy this temple and we build it in three days, John points out that he didn't mean the physical temple, he meant his body. Then you have the anagogical meaning. The anagogical meaning is the meaning that pertains to the church and by extension to the end of times. We find that very heavily in the book of Revelation. We find it in the little apocalypse as it is called in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But elsewhere as well. And the fourth meaning is the one you're most familiar with called the tropological or moral meaning. The meaning of scripture as it applies to me. And the way it was taught in the Catholic tradition is by using the word temple. 
when I look at the temple, the temple of Jerusalem, in its historical, literal meaning, I mean the temple. And all that is around it. The old covenant, the sacrifice, the priestly order, etc. Allegorically, of course, the temple is Jesus Christ. Anagogically, the temple is the church. And morally, the temple is each and every one of us. How do we know that? Well, literally, the temple is the temple. We know that. That's a, that's a historical fact. Allegorically, as I mentioned to you, Jesus applies this to himself. Anagogically, I mean. No, allegorically. Anagogically, the temple becomes the church. That's the whole teaching of St. Paul. And morally, Paul himself reminds us, don't you know that you are, yourself, temples of the Holy Spirit? Now, what happened to that temple? To the Jerusalem temple in 70 AD? was destroyed. What happened to Jesus Christ on the cross? What happens to us when we die? What is going to happen to the church at the end of time? Do you see? What happened to Jesus Christ after he died? What happened to the temple after it was destroyed? It became the church. What happens to us after we die? What will happen to the church at the end of the world, at the end of time? The new creation. Do you see it? These are the four ways in which you interpret scripture. And it isn't something that we make up, it is something that is even embedded in scripture. I can't do a 16 series in half an hour. I'm just pointing that out to you. Why am I pointing that out? Because the purpose of this Bible study is to focus mainly on the literal meaning. What did St. Paul, what was St. Paul's intent when he wrote his Gospel? And why do I need to focus on that? Because as Catholics of the 20th century, when it comes to Scripture, most of us are like those folks who decide to go and visit Europe in 21 days. So they embark on that trip, and I don't know if anybody did that. It's a pretty harrowing trip. You get there, and there's this guy. You go there, and you go there, and we, we go there, and you follow, and you take pictures, and you now hop on a train, and you go to this other place, and you, you're bouncing left and right, and 21 days you come back, you have a bunch of pictures. What have you really seen in Europe? Most of us go through the Gospel the exact same way. Here's Luke talking about the Good Samaritan. Why does he bring that up? At the moment that he brings that up. We don't know. It's a nice story. We just follow through. Oh, now it's Lazarus. Oh, that's cool. Why did he call him Lazarus? Well, we don't know, but it's a nice story. We just follow along. It's a nice story. We're like kids who don't know why the book has been put together the way it was put together. And why is that important to know? Because, as the Church teaches us, all three spiritual meanings, the allegorical, anagogical, and moral, are built upon the literal. You don't understand the literal, you're going to have a really warped view of who Jesus is, of who the Church is, and what your moral life is going to be. 
without a firm grounding in the literal meaning of scripture, you're way out there. And it happens all the time. So our first purpose here is to understand what Luke is trying to say. And I gotta say, buckle up. It's gonna be a wild journey because we have to dive really deep in the Old Testament. The interpretive key to the Gospel of St. Luke is the Old Testament. Without understanding the Old Testament, we will not understand what Luke is talking about. The second purpose, I'm not doing a Bible study just for the purpose of teaching the Bible. Teaching the Bible and learning the Bible and studying the Bible is a tool. It's a means to an end. What is that end? Our end is sanctification. To become saints. Because if you don't become saints, we won't enter heaven. Now I don't necessarily mean canonizable saints, but I do mean saints. And how do we become saints? Is it by saying rosaries? and going to daily mass and arrange capillaries. All these things are wonderful. I do quite a few of those. Don't get me wrong. I'm not disparaging. You know the rosary, no daily mass, any that. All of these things are wonderful. But all of them are still tools. They're means. And they're only enabled when we do what? Convert. An ongoing conversion. And how do we convert? How do we know we're converting? Is it when we sit down and we have this ecstatic experience of prayer? Is it when we experience Jesus and His presence? Is it when we see miracle? No. We can do all these things and be dead. How do we know we're converting? By the way our moral life, the way we conduct ourselves, is being more and more adjusted to the Word of Christ. Our moral life bears the fruit of our theology. And you can't separate the two. There's no such thing as a private moral life. You can't tell me, I love Jesus, I want to be a good Catholic, I want to receive the sacraments, I want to say the rosary, I want to do all these things, on the one hand, and on the other hand, you tell me, but I'm going to have my own moral decisions on what is good and what is bad. It doesn't work this way. So how do you know that you are actually really understanding Scripture and loving Jesus Christ? It's by the way you live. Morally. That is the purpose. Our purpose of studying scripture is not just to study scripture. The purpose of scripture is to come to know Jesus, love Him, and those two things will compel us to change or to walk away. What you're going to get from me is the mind of the church. I teach what the Catholic Church teaches. With all that, let us start with the 
prologue. And by the way, uh, I do expect you guys to bring your Bibles because you will have to follow through. So remember next time to bring your Bible with you. All right. Um, must read is the intro in the Navarre Bible, the historical intro. I'm not going to go through this. I am not very much interested in the dating of the gospel and one was dated and all that. I am more interested in the internal structure of the gospel. Um, and the reasons for that. I'll, 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 I will talk about dating, but not now. A little bit later. And there's a reason for it. Let's start with the prologue. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things which have been accomplished among us, just as they were delivered to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely, for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the truth concerning the things of which you have been informed. That is the prologue. And on the surface, there isn't much for us to read or understand. What is he saying? First of all, this is a classical introduction. Right? Many Greek writers wrote in the same way. They would preface their text with a prologue. On the surface, what does Luke say? I'm dedicating this book to you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you, you what? Why am I dedicating, dedicating this book for, to you? Okay. So that you learn what the truth is? Is that what he said? No. What he says is that you may know the truth concerning the things of which you have been informed. Right? So the point is that he's not going to write this book for him to know the truth. He's writing this book to confirm him in what has been already given to him. Alright? Now, that word informed is loosely translated in English. The Greek is stronger. The Greek is katekeo, from which we derive the word katechesis. So you can say that you may know the truth concerning the things of which you have been, in which you have been catechized. That sets the context for us. Theophilus, we don't know who he is, Theophilus means lover of God, seems to be some Roman prelate or some important person in the Roman society, perhaps somebody who was going to finance the distribution of Luke's Gospel. But be it as it may, Theophilus is not one who did not know what Luke is talking about. He is one who has been, who has been catechized. Now this bear, this begs a question. If Theophilus has been catechized, in what school do you suppose he was catechized? Apostolic, yes. Evidently so. 
But let's be more specific. Do you think Theophilus has been catechized in the school of Peter? Who would be the likely apostle to have catechized Theophilus? Paul. Why? Well, a couple of reasons. Who is Paul's companion? Luke. In Colossians chapter 4, St. Paul refers to Luke as the beloved physician. He's mentioned also in Philemon. He's mentioned in Titus. Luke wrote the Gospel of St. Luke and wrote the book of Acts. We know that Luke wrote the book of Acts after the Gospel because he says so in his intro to the, to, the, to the book of Acts. So really there are one book in two volumes. Who was with Paul in prison? Luke. Who catechized Luke? Paul. You understand? Since Luke is saying to Theophilus, I'm writing so that you may know the truth of the things in which you have been instructed. It follows that Luke is sharing with Theophilus what he himself has learned also at the hand of Paul and others. It is Pauline theology. In fact, there is an icon where you see St. Luke writing and right behind him is this man who's holding St. Luke's, Luke's hand as he's writing. And that man is St. Paul. We're getting Pauline theology. Now why am I saying this? Let's go back to the time of the early church. What was the main problem with which St. Paul had to deal with? What was the number one issue that St. Paul had to deal with at the time of, at the time of his ministry? It had to do with circumcision, yes. But what is this business with circumcision? Let's put things in context. Why am I saying this, by the way, before I, I, I get into it? Because this is key for us to understand what is to come. Luke assumes so much, and I'm going to show you that today, that unless we understand the frame of mind in which he was when he wrote his gospel, we're going to hit a wall of difficulties. So I want to get this out of the way before we hit the Gospel. St. Paul, as you know, was a Pharisee, son of a Pharisee. He was, as he himself says, blameless according to the law. Now, a bit of background. Who are the Pharisees? Are they priests? No. They're not priests. Who are the priests at the time of Jesus in the temple? The Sadducees. Okay. I would recommend also that you do take notes because it's going to help you remember all these things. It's going, I'm going to repeat them, but it, it's helpful for you if you take notes. Alright. There are three, actually there are four groups at the time of Jesus. And they play an important role. And we see their names. And again, 
we don't understand the import. First group is the Sadducees. These are priests. So Anna and Caiaphas are Sadducees. Sadducees do not believe in the resurrection. That's why they don't read, they don't, they don't read the prophets. And that's why, interestingly enough, they themselves excise out of their Old Testament scripture the same set of books that Luther later on will take out of the Bible. Because they don't believe in the resurrection, they don't believe in prayers to the dead. The second group is the, are the Pharisees. Now those are lay folks. They're not priests. They're lay folks. And what is the purpose of the, sad, of the Pharisees? Their purpose is this. For any one of us to go to the temple of Jerusalem, we better be, and let's assume we are here, Jews, wanting to go to the temple of Jerusalem, we better be clean. We cannot enter the temple in a state of uncleanness. And this goes to the law of Moses, the law that was given to them in Deuteronomy, the book of Moses, and Leviticus as well. So, Pharisees thought, hey, wouldn't that be cool if we could extend righteousness into our own homes? So not only do we maintain the state of cleanliness when we go to the temple, but also in our home. As a result, they had to segregate themselves from everybody else. You can't Walk in a place where a non-Jew is, because he will be unclean. Therefore, you won't go to Samaria. You won't touch a Samaritan. Of course, the Samaritan is... is, is, is uh, you won't touch somebody who's dying if you're going to your priestly duties, or, I mean, if you're going to the temple, because you will be unclean. That explains why the Pharisees and the Sadducees did not touch that poor man who was lying on the floor dying. You won't do that. You will not eat with tax collectors and sinners because you will be defined. Pharisees define holiness as what? Separation from all that is unclean. Okay? And we're going to get into that. That plays a major role. That's why Matthew in his Gospel shows us Jesus doing what? touching a leper. According to the Pharisaic law that extended from Moses, if you touch a leper, you become unclean. But in case of Jesus, what happens? Jesus touches a leper, the leper becomes clean. And that's all about the new economy. In the old economy, in the old covenant, if you were righteous and you touched an unrighteous, you became unrighteous. The new covenant Jesus touches someone who is a sinner and he heals them. That's the power of the new economy. Those are the Pharisees. The third group are the Herodians. Now the Herodians are followers of Herod. Herod the Great and then um, um, Herod Antipas, his son. The one who beheaded John the Baptist. The Herodians are basically a political group. They're Jews following Herod. Now, 
Is Herod a Jew? You know, Herod built the great temple of Jerusalem. Is he a Jew? No. What is he? No, he's not a Roman. He is supported by Rome. He's an Edomite. Very good. Son of Edom. The one who is who, who goes all the way back to Canaan, who's under a curse. And by the way, Edom in Hebrew means red. 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 That's why the dragon in the book of Revelation is red. And has seven heads, because those seven heads represent Herod and his seven sons. And the ten diamonds are the ten emperors who supported him. Okay. Herodians are then supporters of Herod. They want the political power. They want people to pay the taxes. What was the problem with paying taxes? Rome imposed tax collectors who were supposed to collect a certain amount of money. But guess what the tax collectors did? They took a commission. They increased the taxes. They gave Rome its due, and Rome didn't care, and they took their own cuts. That's the problem with tax collectors, that's why they hated them so much. And the fourth group, of which we hear very little in the Gospels, with good reason for it, are the Essenes. Now for some of the Essenes, E-S-S-E-N-S, Essenes. The Essenes are formed as Jewish community who live ten miles outside of Jerusalem, and are very famous these days because we have the Dead Sea Scrolls written by Essenes. And the reason why we don't hear too much about them is because more, it is very likely, it's highly likely that most of them became Christians. These are the four communities that play a role in the time of Jesus. Sadducees, the priests, Pharisees, who believe in righteousness, Herodians, followers of Herod, and the Essenes. Paul was a Pharisee. He lived by the law, and that's why he accepted that Stephen should be uh, stoned to death. Because according to the Pharisaic code, what Stephen was talking about was anathema, was not acceptable. What Jesus was talking about was not acceptable. Then Paul converted. Jesus converted. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Persecute me. Persecuting Christians is like persecuting Jesus. Persecute me. And Saul spent three years thinking about it. Saul studied under the most famous rabbi of the time. Um, his name escapes me right now. And Saul was a star pupil. I mean, Saul was a genius. And the natural level, the intellect of St. Paul is incredible. But then when illuminated by the Holy Spirit, it reached heights we can, very few of us can reach. I mean, St. Thomas Aquinas probably is up there with him and, you know, a couple of other saints. What did St. Paul realize? St. Paul, fundamental realization is this. I'm going to say to you today, and we're going to expand it as we go through it. The Mosaic law, the law of Moses in Deuteronomy, is a big premises 
in the history of salvation. It's the parenthesis that we have to do away with. That we cannot live by. The Levitical priesthood, meaning the priests, the priestly line that came from the tribe of Levi after the, after the uh, Hebrews, the Israelites, in Sinai built the golden calf. Moses took away the priesthood from every firstborn son and gave it only to Levi. And from which we have the Levitical priesthood. Right? That priesthood was only temporary. Are we going to see that? It was a temporary mean that, mean that God put in place because of the weakness of Israel. The original plan was for God to do what? Before when God took Israel, when God called Moses. What did God tell Moses? What did he say? Did he say, go tell Pharaoh I want my people out? Was that what he said? No. He said, go tell Pharaoh, I want him to let my people come here three days, worship me, and go back. The original plan was not for Israel to leave Egypt. It was for Israel to come out in the wilderness, worship the Lord for three days, and go back. Why? Because Israel is God's firstborn son. And God wanted to use Israel to teach the nations. Why? Because all nations are his sons. That was the plan. What went wrong? Well, it's one thing to take Israel out of Egypt. It's one thing to take Egypt out of Israel. They got into Egypt. Later they would get into Babylon. The same problem. Egypt was the place where things were happening. Egypt was the place where fashion was being decided. Egypt was the place where as youth you'd want to go to the Egyptian temples because they were cool. There were all these statues and all these hieroglyphs and all this music and all the fun was happening there. What did these Israelites have? A God whose name they can't even pronounce? So what's his God name? Well I can't tell you. Well I can't say it. Okay, well, can you show it to me? Well, no, I don't, I don't have any image for him. Alright, let's see. It's a nameless, faceless God. Is that what you thought? Do you understand the pressure that they had to feel living in Egypt? The same pressure we have with our kids today. No different. I mean, it's magnified with television, but besides, the same problem. What kind of God is that that you can't even touch, you can't even see? What does he do? I mean, does it give you cell phones or something? What does it do for you? Well, no, he just promised them to give us the promised land. Where's the promised land? It's out there. You mean where those guys live? Are you going to give it to you? You believe it? Do you feel the pressure? You've got to understand scripture in its context to feel the pressure that these people were under. So what happened? They got, they became followers of the Egyptian way. So when God put them out of Egypt, what did they do? They built what? A golden calf. Why did they build a golden Why did they make a golden calf? I mean, what did them? Did they sort of sit around and say, hey, you know what? The calf is cool. 
Exorcism, the golden calf. Oh, and maybe we can, we can worship the golden calf. Okay, let's do it. Is that what they did? No. There was a deep reason why they built a golden why they made a golden calf. Because the golden calf goes by the name of Opis. O-P-I-S. The god of fertility in Egypt. And guess what Opis is all about? Money, sex, and power. What was the celebration to Opus? It was an orgy. You understand? One thing to take Israel out of Egypt, another thing to take Egypt out of Israel. One thing to take a guy and get him into the Catholic Church. Another thing to make him a saint. You understand? So, plan A that God had in mind for his firstborn son just didn't work. So what did God say? He said, well, you know what, Israel? You're in such a bad condition that I have to quarantine you. I have to separate you from the nations. I'm afraid if I let you talk to the nations, you just become like them. So I have to put, but forget the Ten Commandments that I gave you as my law. You're not going to be able to live to them, even though you said, I will do it. Well, clearly you can't. I'm going to give you another set of rules that I want you to follow. And those are temporary rules. The purpose is only for you, Israel, to realize how terrible your state is and then to wake up and come to me and say, even those rules that you gave us, we can't follow. Please save us. That's God's plan. As St. Paul puts it, the law was given that grace may be sought. And grace was given that the law may be obeyed. We are not free from the Ten Commandments. We still have to look at the Ten Commandments today. But today, because of the sacraments, we can. Before, they could not. Anyone who can think, who can read the Ten Commandments and say, I can do that, is someone who doesn't know himself. On our own, we cannot. It's impossible. But with God's grace, we can. That's what the grace of the sacrament empowers us to do, to live the Ten Commandments. Okay. Why did I go there? Because that was the problem that Paul was dealing with. What happened? People were becoming Christian. Well, the first question became, well, do we have to allow the Gentiles to become Christian. And to this question, Paul Peter answered in the first council of the church, the council of Jerusalem, he spoke as the Pope and said, yes, God revealed that to me and we will let them enter the church. That was the first infallible decision made by Pope. After that, James who was the bishop of Jerusalem, spoke in a pastoral manner and explained what are the rules that people need to hold to. What was at issue? At issue was food. Those Gentiles eat anything. They eat, you know, frog legs and snails with cream and mushroom and... We don't do these things here. What if we go and visit a Christian Gentile and he just puts snails on the table with mushroom and sauce? 
This is unclean food. The council said, yeah, it isn't. This whole business of unclean food was put in place as a temporary measure to do what? Why did God, you go back and you read the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, and you see a list of food that are permitted and which is not permitted, and what you have to offer and what you can't offer. What's God about saying, well, no, if, if, if the animal has that kind of toe that you can eat it, and if it doesn't, you can't, and well, you sort of wonder, well, what's God about? Well, if you understand the context from which they're coming in Egypt, you understand what God's doing. God is saying to them, every animal you worship, you will sacrifice to me. And every animal you use to sacrifice to those gods, you won't touch. You understand? Very simple rule. It's like your son is on drugs. Heavy on drugs. What do you do? You won't touch drugs. You go to the... You will have uh, uh, you go to rehab, you get clean, and once you clean, you won't touch a cigarette. If I see you touching a cigarette, I'll break your arm. That's how stiff and stringent you have to be because you know what's at stake. It's right. That's what God is saying. In a nutshell, that's what it is all about. That's why we have all these sacrifices. They're so hooked on sacrifices that God says, okay, if you're going to sacrifice to me all these, if you want to sacrifice all these animals, fine, sacrifice them to me. At least sacrifice them to me. Is he really interested in, uh, you know, in a sirloin and a burger with fries? Is that what God wants when he asks for all these sacrifices? No. But he's dealing with a son who is hooked on blood sacrifice. Why? Why were they so hooked? Because in a sense they're smarter than us. They knew that those statues were just statues. But what they represented were not statues. What they represented were sources of power. Demons. Be sacrificed to them that give you power. They didn't have our materialistic mentality that we think we understand everything just by looking at it. They understood there was power to be had and the way you get it, you sacrifice. That was the principal reason why Egyptians and Phoenicians and Assyrians and everybody else sacrificed to these statues. They knew what they were after. So, Council of Jerusalem, here we are. Peter says it is from now on, food is declared clean. Why? Because we have the new economy. We have the new covenant. And on the new covenant, the sacrament will enable us to do what those who came before us could not do. Live a moral life. Fine. Now, you had a group of Christians who came from Jerusalem and were known as, were known as the Judaizers. The Judaizers would go to Christians, Gentiles, and say, you've been baptized, you became a Christian, that's all good and well. But, in order for you to become really Christian, what do you have to do? You have to be circumcised. But let's really understand what you have to be circumcised means. 
It doesn't mean just being circumcised. It means a reinsertion in the old covenant. It means pilgrimage to the temple. It means being tied to the temple. It means obeying all the laws of humans. It means putting yourself under the curses of the old covenant. That's why Paul in Galatians is out of himself. The old economy was a big parenthesis until the coming of the one who can enable us to do what our broken and fallen nature cannot do on its own. That's the purpose of the old covenant. That is what Theophilus has been catechized in. And why do I say all this? Let me give you an example. And the Gospel of Luke is shock full of them. Turn quickly to chapter 2. verse 22. Let me read to you a passage that we all read as stewards. And we understand why they were saying that, but it sounds really cute. And when the time came for uh, their purification according to the law of Moses, usually we don't even pay attention according to the law of Moses. Are you paying a little bit more attention now? When you're according to the law of Moses? Okay, good. They, they brought him up to, to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. This is... Did you raise an eyebrow when you hear that? No. Does it? Let me read it to you again. When the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every man that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer the sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, peritonal does for two young pigeons. Okay. This passage caused many critical um, critical analysis theologian today to say Luke has no clue what he's talking about. This could not have written by somebody who was familiar with the, uh, with the law of Moses. It is probably written by someone in the third, third or fourth generation who really doesn't know what he's talking about. Why? What I'm about to show you has stomped many theologians, very famous theologians. They noticed the problem, didn't know what to do with it. But if you understand the role of the Old Covenant, and if you keep in mind who taught Theophilus, and the backdrop, then when I when I'll enunciate the problem to you, you'll understand the solution. What is the problem? The problem is this insertion. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. Now, in the Navarre Bible, you see on the side, Exodus 13 to 12, 15. 
Okay. If we go to Exodus, this is where that law was given. Every man that opened the womb shall be called holy and poor. Let's turn to Exodus chapter 13. Listen carefully. This is a contradiction that seemed to stomp the rabbis for a very long time. They didn't know what to do with it. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. Whatever is to open the womb, both of man and of beast, is mine. So every firstborn is what? When he's consecrated to the Lord, what does he become? A priest. Okay? And every first beast is offered as sacrifice. Clear? Very good. Let's keep on reading. And Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, for by the strength of the hand of the Lord brought you from this place. Okay? And, um, Now, verse 11. Moses is talking. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, and he swore to you, as he swore to you and your fathers, and, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all the first, all the first that opens the womb. All the firstlings of your cattle that are males shall be to the Lord's. Every firstling of an ass you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons, you shall redeem. Wait, wait, wait a minute. God just said, Consecrate to me every firstborn that opens the womb of man and beast. And here's Moses saying, What? You're going to consecrate to me every firstborn that opens the womb, but the firstborn of an ass you will redeem. Meaning what? What does it mean to redeem? You take back. I don't want it. Take it back. And man, you will take back. I don't want it. What's with God? I mean, in 13 verses, God says one thing and another. He says, everybody, and then he says, but man and donkey, he takes back. I don't want that. Well, which is it, God? All? Or not? By the way, why man and donkey? Let me put you to this way. If I were to say, I would like all the horses muscled and rabbiyan. What are we saying about rabbiyan? 
sitting here with us. Either he's the worst, I want him what? Muzzled. I want him to talk. You understand? Now, what are the qualities of a donkey? Stubborn. Stubborn as a donkey. Right? Willful. The donkey goes wherever the donkey wants to go. I still remember once, the first and last time I rode a donkey. It was with my cousin up in the mountain, and we're going down the hill to a source of water to get water and bring it back up. And it was steep. Really steep. And I'm sitting behind him on that donkey. And went down the hill, and right in the middle, it stopped. Why? I have no clue. But all that I remember is my cousin jumped down, took off his shoe, and started beating on the scaleless beast who completely ignored him. And I'm sitting there, not feeling comfortable at all. I'm a city boy. Never been on a donkey before. And then suddenly, it took off with me on its back. <laughs> and it went wherever it wanted to go. Willful. Stubborn. By the way, has anybody tried to break the neck of a donkey? How do you do that? You just go and you grab the donkey and you... What's God? What's up with God? God is saying, those two I don't want. What is the interpretive key of this text? Verse 11. And when the Lord brings you into the land, where are we right now when he's talking? They just came out of Egypt. What is going to happen between the time that they come out of Egypt and they enter the land? The golden calf. What is going what is what did I tell you God will do? He will take away what? the priesthood from the firstborn. So God knows that before it happens and in the law of Moses he's injecting already the protection that he has to put in place for his people. You understand? The golden calf is the interpretive key to explain what seems to be like a contradiction. Now here's the problem. When did God say consecrate to me the, 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 every firstborn that opens the womb, he said it when they came out of Egypt, before the old covenant was set in place, before the law of Moses take, took place, took effect. Do you understand that? Moses spoke in Deuteronomy right before they were about to enter the land he gave them his law the law of Moses by which they were to live with all the rules and all the regulations God is saying you consecrate to me the firstborn of the womb before the old covenant what is the problem? problem is it seems that Saint Luke got mixed up why? because he says when the time came for the purification according to the law of Moses. What does the law of Moses say about what you're supposed to do when you enter 
the promised land? You're not to consecrate the firstborn. You are to redeem him. You understand? Yet Luke says, in the same breath, when the time came for the purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, and he adds, as it is written in the law of Moses, the Lord, every male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. Well, wait a minute. That doesn't work, Luke. You got it all wrong. When you go to the temple for the purification, you're not supposed to present the firstborn of the womb. According to the law of Moses, you're supposed to redeem him. The firstborn cannot be consecrated. Why? Because consecration means priesthood. And what is the priesthood in the temple? Who runs the priesthood? The Levitical Levite tribe, right? Now, are Joseph and Mary Levites? No, or not. There are of the house of David, meaning what? The tribe of Judah. How can he consecrate a non-Levite as a priest in the house of the Lord? You understand the problem? This would raise immediately eyebrow to anyone familiar with the covenant. It doesn't make sense. Unless Luke presupposes that in his catechism, Ephesus is aware of the fact that the old covenant is a big parenthesis. And that we are now, with the coming of Jesus, back to when we came out of what? Egypt. You understand that? This, in one, in one sentence, Luke is already telling us what Jesus is about to do. Annulling the Levitical priesthood and establishing the new covenant where, as Peter tells us, every one of us is priest, king, and prophet. The three prerogatives we had before the golden calf, taken away by the golden calf. Do you understand? Make sense? Just a second. You can't... What happens is that you, you read the Gospel, St. Luke, and these things, first of all, triggers nothing at all. They have no echo in us. Why? We're not catechized. We don't understand the context. We don't understand what these words mean. According to the law of Moses, every first word shall be consecrated to the Lord. Well, no, the law of Moses doesn't say that. It says actually probably opposite. What's going on here? Luke is very subtle. Luke will tell us profound truths without alerting them to alerting us to them because and it's the only sane explanation. Because he assumes we've been catechized. Now let's go back and read the prologue and you will see how much more sense it makes 
with that assumption in mind. And this is, believe me, this is not an isolated case. I mean, I'm hoping to go through the, through the infancy narrative in five lectures. God willing. I'm not sure. It is all over the place. And I'll show you that. Going back now, if you read it, with that background, you see what he's doing. Having followed all things closely for some time past, he meditated on it. He didn't write it right away. He's not a journalist. I have, okay, I decided to write an orderly account. Don't be misled by that word. Orderly does not mean chronological order, order as we understand it today. Luke is giving us history true. But he's giving us theology. His orderly account is to show us what? That the old covenant is made away with, that Jesus is establishing the new covenant, and he's preparing his what? Exodus. The Exodus. And that's why the road to Jerusalem takes 19 chapters because where will the exodus take place? Take place in Jerusalem. When? At the ascension. You understand? What are we dealing with here? We're dealing with an exodus. But what is Egypt? It's Jerusalem. And what is the promised land? Heaven. In fact, Luke is the only one to point out to us in the Mount of Transfiguration when Elijah and Moses appeared to Jesus, Luke tells us what they were talking about. What they were talking about? They were talking about his exodus. It is about the exodus. What is Jesus? It's a new Moses who is taking us from the current Egypt to the Promised Land. By way of conclusion, I want to throw this up to you today, and we're going to pick it up next week. Typically, in today's world, we tend to use three words interchangeably, and we think they mean the same thing, but they do not at all. Hebrew, Israelite, and Jew. We believe they mean the same thing. They actually mean three completely different things in the Bible. And if we do not realize that, we're not going to be able to understand what they're talking about. Okay? I'm going to read us to you today, and hopefully you'll sink in. Hebrews are descendants of Eber. H-E-B-R. Eber is the great-grandfather of Abraham. All descendants of Eber are Hebrews. Okay? Israelites are descendants of Israel, Jacob. They are the descendants of all the children of Jacob. You understand? Therefore, all Israelites are Hebrews. Not all Hebrews are Israelites. Okay? Jews are descendants of Judah. 
J-U-D-A. He is the third son of Israel, of whom Jacob said that the sword shall not depart from Judah until it is given to whom it belongs. That is why Joseph is of the tribe of Judah. David is of the tribe of Judah. You understand? Jews, Israelites, and Hebrews are not the same. Jews are Israelites. Not all Israelites are Jews. For instance, children of the tribe of Ephraim are Israelites, but they're not Jews. Children of Manasseh are Israelites, they're not Jews. You understand? Very important to keep that in mind. And in particular, you know, God does talk to us with some of the irony. All Muslims are Hebrews. Because they're sons of Ishmael. This is son of Abraham. And their grandfather, great grandfather, is Hebrew. They're Hebrews. What you have here is a fight in the family. Where Abraham, because of his sins, brought about the infighting that went through the generation. So keep these three in mind because they're going to be recurring in the gospel okay, often, and they're very important. Why don't we um, finish with a word of prayer? And then, as we usually do, those of you who need to leave can do so, those of you who would like to stay for questions. Oh, good question. But the purification is not about the presentation. The presentation of Jesus is when they came to present him so that he be circumcised. The purification is about Mary. Forty days after, according to the law of Moses. Yes, not the presentation. Well, it isn't that there's a problem, it's that the quotation, it's the quotation of that text that is a problem, seemingly a problem. The law of Moses does not say that you're going to consecrate every firstborn to... There was this experiment done where they had four monkeys in a cage. And they had a stairway in a cage. And up the stairway there were bananas. And every time one of the monkeys attempted to go up the stairs to go to the bananas, they would spray the monkey with water. In fact, they would not only spray that monkey, they would all the monkeys. So eventually, it got so painful to the monkeys that any monkey attempted to go up that ladder would be beaten. So after a while, they took the bananas away. Same thing would happen. If any one of the monkeys tried to go up, the three others would beat this monkey, even though no one, nobody's water was spread long. Then they opened the cage, took one monkey out, put another monkey in, who never seen the bananas. And that monkey would look around and see the stairs. What do you think he's going to do? Go up the stairs. What do you think is going to happen to them? He'd beat him down. After a while, he was not going to go up those stairs anymore. Then they took a second monkey, put a new monkey in. That new monkey, one to go up the stairs, got beaten down. What do you think the other monkey, the one that introduced before him, did? He did it just as much as the other ones. Didn't get any clue why? It was clueless. Eventually, the four original monkeys were gone. He had four new monkeys, and none of them 
put God those things. That's not coming. It was put in place because of the golden calf. Not because you Israelites are so wonderful and God loves you so much and while tough for the others. It is actually the other way around. I gotta shield you from the nations because if I send you to the nations, which is what I intended to do, you just become like them. Until the time of your restoration. Of the restoration of what? The kingdom of Israel. And we're going to see how much this is difficult for them to comprehend. Why? Because in 793 BC, something happened to three quarters of the kingdom of Israel. The Assyrians stood down and destroyed Samaria and Galilee. And they shipped the ten tribes out and forced them to intermarry with five other conquered people. Who was left? Judah and Benjamin down south. That was it. And in 500 and so BC, what did the Syrians do? Get to Jerusalem, destroy it, and ship them into exile, to Babylon. And this was prophesied to them, first by Moses, in Deuteronomy, in Leviticus chapter 26, and in, uh, um, in Leviticus chapter 26 and Deuteronomy chapter 28. Moses told them, when all these things, the blessing and the curses, will happen to you, you'll wake up and remember the Lord, and He will do what? He will write the law on your heart. What do you think God wrote the law on stone to tell them how hard your heart is? Okay? So all the prophets were sent first to the ten tribes up north, up, uh, north, then to Judah down south, telling them, get ready, it's coming, change or else, change or else. Then it became, don't bother, it is coming. There's no if, no but, you're shipped into exile. And then it is, wait for the restoration. The restoration is coming. We're going to get into this when we hit the narrative, the interesting narrative. So, that is the point that Paul is making. You guys don't understand the covenant. The old covenant was given because of transgression. The law of Moses was given because of transgression. What transgression Paul has in mind? The golden calf. The old covenant had 14 blessings and about 50 curses. Now, let me clarify something for the covenant, which those of you who've been with me for a while know, and I beg your, your, your patience, you've heard me say this over and over again, but I need to say it for, those, for the benefit of those who have not been with us for a while. What's a covenant? When you go to the court of law, and you put your hand, right hand, on the Bible, and you say what? You raise your left hand, and you say what? I swear to say the truth, all the truth, nothing but the truth, so help me God. What is the part that is missing that you don't say out loud, but you're supposed to know? Or I be damned. Now, why do you put your hand on that book? Because you just invoked the name of God. In the court of law, we can't trust each other. I don't know, you don't know me. 
So we have to invoke the name of one that is higher than us. The one that judges impartially. Who's God? And so what are you really saying when you do that and you put your hand on this Bible? You're saying this. If I say the truth, and you think I'm lying, may all the blessings of that covenant recorded in this book come upon me. But if I'm lying, and you think I'm saying the truth, may all the curses recorded in this book come upon me. And guess what? You have invoked the name of God. Now, in a sense, you've put God under obligation to execute that covenant written in this book. Likewise for marriage. Why do you go stand before a priest? A priest doesn't marry you. That's the only sacrament that the couple is actually imparting upon each other. What's the role of the priest then? He is the witness. He witnessed on behalf of whom? God. Right? The community is witnessing on behalf of the church. He is standing in person at Christian. You're saying to him, you're saying to each other, why? Because we don't trust following human nature. I promise to what? To love you in sickness and in health. We say those words. And most often, thank God, we don't really know what they mean. If we did, most of us would be celibate. Same, same thing happened to the Jews, to the, to the Israelites, I mean. God appeared on the mountain, thunder and all that, and he said, this is the law. Will you do it? All of them. Everything the Lord said, we'll do. Oh yeah. Schwarzenegger, here I come. That's what, that's what they did. That's what we do. We invoke God's name. What do you think God is supposed to do when we are faithful to this marriage? What is He going to do? He will bless us. According to what? According to the new covenant. And when we are not faithful to the marriage, what do you think He will do? He will curse us. People imagine Jesus as a sort of 70, 1970 hippie walking around you know, peace, girl, peace. You know, we've learned more about hell from Jesus than all the Old Testament put together. He pronounces seven woes on Jerusalem. Seven curses. That is the principle of a covenant. Blessings, if we follow it. Curses, if we don't. Why curses? They're medicinal. Their purpose is to bring us back. That's why. Because God loves us. And He loves us despite ourselves. You understand? The mechanism of the covenant is so important for us to understand. Without it, we won't be able to do anything. So the old covenant, the old covenant, was one that basically could not possibly save anyone. It did not have what it takes, what it takes to bring us unto salvation. The gates of heaven was shut. Paul is saying, "Look, guys." Hello, wake up. This whole thing was put in place because of transgression. Jesus Christ came and with him grace was given. Grace to do what? To be able to go to the law of the Lord, the Ten Commandments, and be able to live it and be truly saints. 
and then everything fits together. If we don't receive baptism, we're not saved. If we're not confirmed in the Holy Spirit, we're not saved. If we don't eat and drink of the, of the, uh, uh, the, eat the flesh and drink the blood of the Lord, we're not saved. Why? Because we need these things to enable us to do what the law demands. St. Augustine again says, God who created you without you will not save you without you. That's what Paul is all about. That's what Luke is all about. And I know I need to stress this over and over until it becomes routine. But I will show you as you proceed through how this interpretive key makes sense of the next paragraph. You don't understand why Luke says this and then he says that. There's a logic to it and it follows and it's orderly. Without it, you reduce St. Luke to Greek grammar. Father, you had a question? No. Yes. Well, good question. Firstborn is always the male. So even if I have five sisters, in my case I have, I have, what, I have six girls and one boy, right? My boy is my firstborn. Firstborn is a title, you understand? It isn't a biological reality. Yes, male. Firstborn that opens the womb is male. You understand? Not firstborn, any firstborn. It's always a male. That is always the interpretive way. This is, this is an idiom. So we, we should not ascribe to it. Unless when I say the firstborn that opens the womb will be similar to when I say give me a break. You understand? It's a Hebrew idiom. If I say give me a break, you don't go out to your car and come back and give me a break. Right? So we don't understand it in that literal sense. When I say the first one that opened the womb, they mean the first boy to be born in the family. That's its meaning. That's why, for instance, uh, we can say in the Gospel as well, when Mary went to present her firstborn, many of our uh, you know, fundamentalist brother and sister understand this to mean, well, see, here's the first one, it means there's a second. Well, no, it doesn't have anything to do with the second. It just has to do with the fact that it is the firstborn. That's the title. That's it. it y- this is the point. Firstborn is in relation to priestly duty. Okay? That's what, that's the key. Yes? Correct. You're right. In this case, it was a boy, so it was supposed to be 40 days. You're right. That's exactly the law of Moses. You know, all this ritual purification means. By the way, why did Moses prescribe this? Why did he prescribe that? Why was a woman unclean when she gave birth? Hmm? Okay, blood. Why? Because blood was always connected in the understanding of the ancient Israel to life. Now, those folks did not have a very good medical understanding of what we have today. As Father Paco was pointing out, they thought that intelligence resided in the kidneys, not the brain. The brain was just to control the eyes and the mouth and the thing on the face. 
for your intelligence resided down here. That's our understanding. Okay? So to them, blood was connected to life. When you lose blood, what are you losing? You're getting close to what? Death is something. That's it. That's nothing to do with the fact that you're a woman and you're giving birth. None of that. Okay. So you, again, you have to understand it in its proper context. Without which, besides, there is a really good other reason. Let's see. Good. What you have to understand is that Moses is trying to control their um, lustful appetite too. Okay. So there's a there's a number of reasons associated with that, but that's basically the reason why those law those law were these laws were given, these laws were given to take them where they are at. That's the key. Remember, this is not about God giving us his perfect view of the world. Don't make that mistake. You think that mistake will be shocked. How could God say all these things? No, no, no. Listen, this is God showing us his love to a wayward, stubborn, rebellious child running away from him. Israel went into Egypt and became enamored by money, sex, and power. So much so that they're completely taken by it. Let me put you in, 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 in context to understand. You have a Catholic brother or sister or relative. They're so after the things of the world that you think you can invite them to this Bible study? You think they're going to come? They'll be here, be bored to death. Right? They can't... They're they don't have what it takes to even absorb a modicum of spiritual teaching. They're just born. What do you have to do? Well, you talk to them about what? Good living. If they can at least behave themselves, you know, okay? Okay, look, don't go sleeping, you know, left and right. Alright? Try to get married. Don't get married in church, right? Just get married. You'd be happy if they would behave themselves this way, right? Does this mean that this is what you really wish for them? Is that what you really want to give them? Does this represent your ideal of human behavior? No! It represents what? Your patience. Your love. Your, your charity towards them. You're taking them where they are at and giving them whatever they can take. Okay? That's what the Bible is all about. When you read the Deuteronomy, Numbers, um, in all these books, don't think God is giving you His best. No, His best has a name, Jesus Christ. It is showing you God's love to a wayward, stubborn, rebellious, decadent child that cares nothing about God and cares only about money, sex, and power. Do you understand? The Bible is not about Israel. The Bible is about God and how He loves us and He takes us wherever we are and is patient with us and He doesn't abandon us and He carries the burden all the way to the last moment of our life. Even if we keep on saying no, 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 no. And at the last moment of our life, if we stick to that no, He will respect it. That's what the Bible is all about. Sorry, I just thought about uh, the example that I gave. So it was taking the, the Jews from one country to another. Israel. One of, Israelites. One of the to another, just like they were taking the, the, uh, 
they were taking the monkeys in out of the cage. The government on the 